as we go forward here. The Supreme Court will hear those oral arguments. We'll likely get a decision several months from now, but that is putting ag in the spotlight. We're going to continue that here on AOA. We're going to talk markets here with Mr. Matt Bennett of agmarket.net in just a moment. After that, it's weather with John Baranek of DTN Weather, dealing with the leftover impacts of tropical storm, I should say Hurricane Ian, as it lashed across Florida in the southeast. Plus, what to expect here as harvest season gets underway. And in segment three, Jackie Fetka, the policy editor over at Farm Progress, will be joining us. No doubt we'll touch on that Sackett's case with the EPA, but there's also other EPA actions in the news this week. Jackie will bring us that update from Washington, D.C. Before we get into all of that, though, let's begin here by checking the markets with our friend Matt Bennett of agmarket.net. Matt, you're down there in central, south central Illinois. How is the crop looking and is harvest underway from your part of the country? Yeah, actually, Mike, as I'm talking to you, uh, we just started harvesting today. I'm sitting in a combine. So uh, we've gotten quite a bit done, actually. We're about halfway done. Uh, started two weeks ago, and, you know, this weather's just been nothing short of fantastic. Uh, you know, in this stage of the game, right here in central Illinois, there's a lot of good crops. Uh, you don't have to go too far in any direction. There's uh, some issues here and there, but for the most part, I think the corn's really good. Most folks right in here thought they would have record corn crops on a lot of their farms, and I don't know that that's been the case. I think, you know, here and there, there's been some record-type deals, but uh, a lot of these corn yields have been really, really good, uh, just maybe not over-the-top type good. Uh, bean crop so far has been solid as can be. I think the beans, relatively speaking, maybe an even more pleasant surprise. So it's been an interesting harvest so far, but certainly not much to complain about. Well, that's good to hear, Matt. As you think about that supply of potential corn shrinking, as folks realize those record yields maybe aren't there this year. We saw a similar situation play out last week with the quarterly grain stocks. Turns out we don't have as much corn as we thought here in farmers' hands. Did the numbers catch you by surprise there on Friday? Yeah, I don't know if you saw, Mike, but we were actually below guess as far as corn was concerned. Now, I got to be honest with you, we were one of the higher guesses uh, or one of the lower guesses for beans, and we missed it by a fair amount but as far as corn was concerned we were at a 1420 for carry and we thought actually that might be a little bit high we just didn't think the usda would come in with a 1377 you know it's hard to forecast those numbers mike because you know you come up with what you think the number should be but at the same time you've got to be guessing what the usda is going to say and so it's a little more complicated than people think but overall i wasn't super shocked that it came in uh, at a sub one four, you know the thing is, is that uh, we're still running excess of where we were at a year ago. I believe by uh, around eleven percent. But what what that tells you is, is that uh, you know eight dollar corn has done its job to an extent. You know we've certainly kind of taken some of the shine off the demand, but at the same time, uh, eight dollar seven and eight dollar corn, you know, didn't uh, get the acreage maybe that we needed. Uh, you know because when you start looking at your new crop carry, if you take that. 150 million bushel off a new crop carry, all of a sudden you're below 1 1. And it'd be very interesting to see what the USDA has to say October 12th because uh, they're going to have to uh, pull a couple of tricks out of the bag. They will. I mean, that is the next big date we're watching for that October World Agriculture Supply and Demand Estimates. Matt, does this change? Does Friday's number change the overall grain market's balance sheet substantially heading into that uh, next WASDE report? You know, what it does is it, it highlights this, Mike. They took 250 million bushels out of the demand last month, okay? And so, you know, were they able to, going to be able to take a whole lot more out of demand? I know exports have been abysmal. 
uh, U.S. corn is the most expensive on the world market. I'm well aware of that. But at the same time, you know, if we're not able to get corn out of the Black Sea region and wheat out of the Black Sea region with what's going on over there, it certainly highlights the effect that, you know, the U.S. may actually put a fair amount of corn on the world market this marketing year. And if that's the case, you know, I tell you what, you start getting into some really tight numbers. So what's the yield? I mean, that's that's going to be a big question mark. Is yield going to go up, down, or sideways? And I think uh, it's going to be pretty hard to say the yield goes up substantially from, you know, what the USDA has said previously. I know in some of the areas where it's really tight, you know, in the crop wasn't very good and uh, drought situations, the crop's not as good as what they thought it might be, whereas in some areas, uh, you know, the crop's maybe a little better. So I don't see any major trend there. And with that being said, I just think that a one-two carry or below is probably something we're going to be looking at on the 12th. All right. It'll be interesting to see how the managed money traders react to those numbers when they come out. Uh, Matt, I wanted to get your thought here on the soybeans market. That was the bearish surprise for the trade on Friday. Came in with a few more bean bushels on hand than we'd expected. What what numbers caught you off guard there? You know, uh, so the 274, I mean, they came in and said last year's crop was a little bit uh, better than what they previously thought. Uh, by 0.3 bushels. Interestingly, the corn crop was 0.3 less at a 176.7. Uh, beans was up there at 51.7. And so, you know, what caught me off guard, I guess, uh, it was just a little more stocks than what I thought. Whenever you look at the basis, when you look at spreads, at the absolute thirst for beans coming into harvest, I felt like maybe we were running a little tighter yet than what the USDA had mentioned there in that September lawsuit. Uh, but regardless, it's still a 274. It's not like we're swimming in beans. And so uh, from a percentage standpoint, you know, you, yes, you, it was still a bearish report but by all means. But at the same time, Mike, I tell you what, you're still looking at stocks use ratios, you know, in that 5 and 6% level. I mean, it's tight, and it's going to probably stay tight here in the U.S. But I've been saying this for a while. You're looking at a world versus domestic situation, and the, the simple fact of the matter is, yeah, we may be awfully tight here in the U.S., but I'll tell you what. It's not super tight in other parts of the world. And with Brazil coming at us with another big increase in bean acres, you know, a producer here in the U.S. has to be cognizant of that and have a good impact on the market. Well, but Matt, we're not going to see those Brazil bean acres coming onto the market here until February, March of this next year. Could exports get exciting before then? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. Our exports... You know, they could be pretty strong, but at the same time, we, we obviously know that, you know, there's a lot of issues right now in China as far as the slowdown is concerned. You know, and then they talk about uh, wanting to pull some soybean meal out of their rations for hogs. And, you know, that's got to be concerning to producers here because they've essentially had an insatiable demand for soybeans and soybean meal over the last several years. And, you know, if that demand maybe backs off or we lose the shine off of it a little bit, you know, there's no doubt that there could have a pretty, you could have a pretty good impact you know, on soybean demand moving forward. But overall, it's a tight enough situation here in the U.S. I expect to see some support, but at the same time, once again, uh, we've been looking at the amount of salty bean prices going into harvest, and I sure hate to uh, just sit here and assume that they're going to stay around forever. That's a great point. Sell when you can, not when you have to, folks. We've been talking to Matt Bennett of agmarket.net. Their website's right there in their name. You can check them out at agmarket.net. Matt Bennett, we wish you the best of luck with harvest. Stay safe out there. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Folks, stick around. We're going to talk weather with John Baranek of DTN Weather here when AOA returns.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. This is the place most people think of when they hear that a seat has been engineered for superior performance and designed with proven genetic traits. Because something like that could only come from a lab, right? But this is where Allegiant Seed by CHS comes from. It's made by farmers for farmers. Its advanced genetics and unbeatable value are proven here in their fields to make sure they do the job in yours. Talk to your CHS retailer about Allegiant Seed today or learn more at AllegiantSeed.com. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the King of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save poison help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. This past week was a very interesting weather week across the United States. We had very pleasant weather for much of the Corn Belt, much of the growing regions here across this great country, too. We're able to make some progress on harvest, but of course, for the southeast, last week was catastrophic with Hurricane Ian making its way across Florida and then swinging back around to run into the Carolinas and make its way north. Bringing an update to us this week is John Baranek of DTN Weather. John, thanks for joining us. Hey, John, let's talk a little bit about what happened here with Hurricane Ian. As you saw that storm start to spread, what's what was the agricultural impact there across the state of Florida? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting because, I mean, they got a whole lot of heavy rain, uh, but the heaviest rain that was kind of like in a band of over a foot, I think, missed a lot of the, the citrus areas um, there, which are more kind of towards the southern end. Uh, they saw more on the on the, the order of like four to six inches of rain, so not as bad. But you know, uh, you know, it's 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 pretty heavy rainfall anyway. Over the northern portions of the state, though, a lot of it's never already down. Um, uh, you know, much of it's already harvested. They didn't see much rain out of that, but it was you know four to six inches of rain over some citrus areas was was for the most part what uh, what the main impacts there were for Florida for agriculture. I mean, some of the winds were incredible as well. Um, yeah, but I don't think there was a whole lot of damage to most of the groves. I think most of that, most of the, the, the real damage occurred for, um, you know, some of the, the swampier areas there in, in central Florida. Gotcha, John. I did want to wonder, I know you work with a lot of uh, businesses throughout the world of agriculture, and Florida is a major phosphate producer. Have you heard anything about mines shutting down or any impacts caused by Hurricane Ian on the phosphate front, or is that uh, bottom of the radar? You know, for me, honestly, I didn't see a whole lot. I think I did see uh, something where there was uh, a little bit of, uh, of production being uh, reduced out of that state, but I didn't really look into it too much. So unfortunately, I don't know a whole lot for you. That is okay. John, let's bring our focus back up here to the northern parts of the Corn Belt. Harvest is underway. It was very good weather this past week, expecting some good harvest progress. What do you see in the week ahead here for the northern plains and northern Corn Belt? Yeah, for the most part, I think we're going to do all right. Uh, there is a little system that parked itself out in the northern Rockies late last week uh, and brought some showers here to kind of the Dakotas and western Nebraska and farther west. Uh, portions of Minnesota got in on it too. But for the most part here, most of the Corn Belt was high and dry, um, and conditions are really good for getting out and harvesting. I saw a lot of that around my area, even though we did get a few showers. Uh, but, you know, that kind of continues here this week. We get that little system that will finally move its way east across the Corn Belt here, uh, really tomorrow and Wednesday. And that's ahead of a huge cold front that's going to be dropping down from Canada uh, right behind that system. But, you know, that, neither that little system or the front's going to have a whole lot of rainfall for it. So, you know, there may be some spots here and there that see a little bit of delay. Uh, but for the most part, I, I think the, the good weather continues. The good weather continues, at least on the precip side. John, you had quite an emphasis there on the huge cold front coming down from Canada. Yeah. What would you expect as that system makes its way across? Yeah, so I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a doozy. It's going to you know really pass through almost the entire country here east of the Rockies, and uh, you know once it finally settles in, uh, the winds will the winds will calm down, the skies will clear out, and uh, that's just a great recipe here for producing some cold morning temperatures Friday, Saturday morning. Uh, you know, from really Colorado, Kansas, all the way to uh, probably Kentucky and areas northward, we're looking at frosts and freezes. So it's a little bit early down there for southern areas, not so much for the northern areas, but 
It should be pretty widespread over a large area of the Corn Belt uh, coming up late this week and weekend. And is it going to be the start of winter, John, as this cold front moves through? Are we going to drop into the cold for good, or is there the potential for a warm-up later on as well? You know, it's the fall season, and Mother Nature really likes to hit us uh, during the fall season with these, with these strong cold fronts. And, you know, we're going to be kind of in that typical pattern. She'll kick us down quite a bit here, really step us down, uh, and then we'll recover a bit, and then she'll bring another cold front down uh, to do the same. I think we're just going to be in that pattern here east of the Rockies, uh, really through the month of October. We've got not only this one, um, we'll warm up a few days after that, late weekend into early next week, but then we got another stronger cold front that looks like it'll probably come through mid to late next week uh, and do much of the same. This one might have a little bit more of a system on it, so we might get some more widespread rainfall with it. But, um, um, you know, we should really expect that to kind of continue to play this game where we'll get a cold front move through, knock us down, We'll recover a little bit, but then we'll get knocked down a little bit further. So really just kind of stepping downward in our temperatures throughout the course of the month. All right, John, I'd like you to go up to the Pacific Northwest here, west of the Rockies in the Northern Plains. Three, four weeks ago, all the talk was about the fire damage happening out there, the wildfires still spreading. And today, I just looked on Friday, we're still seeing 88 wildfires there across the western U.S. Any uh, chance for rain here, a break in that uh, fire season here as we head farther into fall? Really not uh, seeing much of, uh, of help from Mother Nature in that regard. Uh, you know, what's really kind of in the background of everything across North America is this kind of broad ridge. And, you know, every so often with these cold fronts, we'll get a nice trough coming down each of the Rockies. But it's not really happening out there in the west. So we're going to stay underneath that stronger ridge. That keeps away all the rain, also keeps it much warmer. And so that's really not uh, a good combination there to help fight wildfires. I don't really see a huge change in that coming up anytime soon. All right, John, as we go a little farther south, still talking drought territory, southern plains, Texas, Oklahoma there. I see New Mexico has the chance for some rainfall this week. Any relief there as those pastures need some moisture here ahead of winter? I think we'll get a little bit. You know, the system that's out over the Rockies, you know, most of the activities here in the kind of northern plains, um, but there is a little bit of a, uh, I don't know if you would call it a weakness but or a front, but, you know, just kind of a little focus area where there's, a little bit of a chance for showers here over western Kansas down to the Panhandle uh, and western uh, Texas. So I think we get a little bit of rainfall out of it. You know, it's it's hitting this shower, so it's very isolated. I don't think it's going to amount to a whole lot. You know, that, that front net comes through um, later this week also doesn't have a whole lot of moisture with it. Behind it, though, there might be some showers kind of from Nebraska southward um, that, that kind of trail that front by a day or so. Uh, but again, it's not going to be a whole lot uh, of help for many folks. So, you know, I think on the order of, of a tenth to maybe a quarter of an inch of rain, you know, it's not dry, uh, but, you know, I don't think it's a whole lot of help for too many people. John, I think as a lot of listeners, maybe our producers tuning in to you talking right now, it sounds like a great forecast for harvest. We're going to be able to get out there and run. Not a lot of precipitation in the forecast, but I'm curious. Last week, we started to see some alarm bells being raised about water levels on the Mississippi. They're coming down very quickly. Barge rates are hitting record highs. What? How concerned are you about water levels in the Mississippi here through the central U.S. as we get into winter and we need that river to ship our grains here uh, to our export partners? Yeah, I'm very worried about it, honestly. Um, you know, this, you know, we, we had a lot of heat and dryness over the summertime that really set us up 
to really need these fall rains to kind of recharge our soil moisture across a lot of the area. Um, you know, but we're, we, we're not really seeing it. These, these systems that are moving through are moving through pretty quickly, so they don't have a whole lot of rainfall with it. Now, I mentioned the, the one system kind of next week that might have a better shot of some more widespread uh, rainfall, but, um, you know, what it really takes uh, over these large basins, the Mississippi, the Missouri, the Ohio, to get uh, the river levels to come up are these slow-moving, widespread, moderate to heavy rain events, big, deep systems, and, but we're not really seeing those. We're seeing a lot of these little quick moving storms that are moving across. So um, we just really don't pile up rain over, over a good enough area to really increase water levels. And I don't really see that happening here. Uh, our forecasts are, are pretty bleak in that regard. So uh, I'm very concerned, uh, especially as we get into winter and the ground starts freezing up and locking away any soil moisture anyway, uh, that we, you know, we might be dealing with low water levels here all the way through wintertime into early spring. John, we've seen more rainfall and more widespread rainfall over the eastern Corn Belt. How are levels on the Ohio and the, the southern end of the Mississippi? Yeah, not not very good. Uh, I haven't looked at it as closely as maybe I should have, but, you know, but outside of what Ian has done here um, over the weekend, and it did produce some pretty decent rainfall from kind of West Virginia into eastern uh, Ohio into western Pennsylvania, kind of at the start of the Ohio, at the Ohio, uh, to kind of bring it in a little bit better here. Um, but, you know, uh, it's a big basin, and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of drought here kind of on the, the southern end of it and going down into the, uh, into the Mississippi. So that area has been pretty dry overall over the last uh, several weeks. So everything's drying out on the southern end of that. And you know, I'm, I'm right, very concerned folks. about water levels. Well, growers across the Midwest, your supply chain troubles night might not be done quite yet. John Baranek there of DTN Weather with that crucial update. John, thanks for joining us today. Always good to talk to you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk with Jackie Fatka, the policy editor over at Farm Progress, when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. If you're not filling with Senex Premium Diesel, then you're not giving your fuel system the premium treatment. Cenex Roadmaster XL comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, while restoring your power by up to 4.5% and your fuel economy by up to 5%. Typical number 2 diesel? I guess it covers the basics. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Fairly quiet trade so far to start the week with mixed action to mostly higher in the grains with quarter wheat. The upside leaders, although they have come off their session highs as we've gotten into Monday's trade. Private exporters reported sales of 110,000 metric tons of soybeans for delivery to unknown destinations during the 22-23 marketing year on the Daily Wire on Monday morning. And we look back at Friday's action in the markets headlined by the USDA reports. Quarterly grain stock, small grain summary, full of surprises. USDA slashing all wheat production by 133 million bushels or nearly 7.5% on Friday. Meantime, USDA also cut last year's corn production by 41 million bushels and pegged September 1st corn stocks at 135 million bushels below the average trade guess, suggesting larger corn feeding. Last year's soybean crop was bumped up by 30 million bushels, pushing stocks above the average trade guess by a similar amount. In other words, quarter wheat stocks tightening while soybean stocks are getting larger. And that's going to set the table for this week's round of private U.S. production estimates. All of that ahead of the October 12th WASDE report from USDA. Corn stocks cannot afford to get any tighter without more demand rationing, but traders are less confident now that we will see further cuts. Stocks again firming overnight, setting a positive tone to start trading in the new week and the new month. However, firmer stocks have not been a problem in overnight trading lately, but rather sustaining that strength into the day session has been the challenge as we see that stocks are still relatively mixed to higher here as we work through the morning with energies rallying. Crude oil back near $85 a barrel. Livestock trade mostly positive as well with strength seen in cattle and hog futures as we work through monday's trade you're listening to aoa for the american Act. 54 so basically it's too late to start saving for retirement right not right starting to save even in your 50s can really make a difference well right now saving seems hard to wrap my head around Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day here today. Before we go too much further, I want to extend a hearty welcome to new listeners up there of KXPO in Grafton, North Dakota. We are glad that you are tuning in to us today. We certainly appreciate you being a part of our audience. And it brings us really right at home to our next point. Conversations have developed up in North Dakota about a Chinese-owned corn milling plant. And uh, those conversations have now spilled into Washington, D.C. Joining us today to talk about it is Jackie Fatka. She's the policy editor over at Farm Progress. And Jackie, what is the House of Representatives doing here about this land purchase in North Dakota? You know, we've really seen an increase of uh, 
foreign owned land and obviously a lot of U.S. producers that's causing some concern. And so there's been some House Republicans that last week had sent a letter to the Department of Defense actually asking for some, as well as USDA Secretary Vilsack on, you know, this this actually raises some red flags when it comes to security, right? Our national security. Um, and then just this morning, actually, I saw another letter out from House Agricultural Republican leader Glenn G.T. Thompson, and also the leader of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, uh, James Colmer, um, and 128 of their colleagues also requesting a GAO study on the foreign investment in U.S. farmland and its impact on national security, trade, and food security. So actually, you know, a couple different things. Um, and, and these are, this is ways that Congress can help bring attention, bring some light to an issue that that they're hearing from the countryside. And so that's probably why you're hearing that's going on um, to make sure that, hey, let's get a better understanding of how much is now owned by foreign entities, what this could mean on our national security and also food security. Absolutely. And this particular issue up in Grand Forks, North Dakota, this is Fufang Group. They're a Chinese manufacturer and they are looking to build a corn milling plant there in Grand Forks, North Dakota. And Jackie, the concern really is that it's pretty close to the uh, the Grand Forks Air Force Base, isn't it? Right. And, you know, there's other ones that have some concerns, whether it's in Florida. I mean, we have our, our bases, our military bases all over the country. And so, um, you know, that was part of the letter last week, too. You know, several of the, the individuals who signed on to this letter have a base nearby and they want to understand more of where this uh, you know, the foreign land is is owned, um, you know, this is something that sometimes slides under the radar, right? Like you might not know that um, this this Fufeng group that you mentioned has close links to the CCP, the, the Communist Party there in China. And so uh, these are these are situations where once we get lots of them, then, oh, wait a second, now we're already behind. We already have a lot of these uh, purchases and, and land is already owned by a foreign entity. And so um, you know, I think this is a good opportunity to kind of pause and, and see where things are right now. But, you know, it's been really interesting as I was looking at the story, you know, how much of an increase in recent years we've seen just over the last couple decades of, um, you know, how much land is now owned by foreign land. You know, it's 37.6 million acres of, of U.S. ag land. Um, that that's a lot. That's not a small chunk of, of ground. That That is a lot of acres of 37.6 million acres of U.S. ag uh, land is now owned by foreign investors. Wow. Yeah, that is a big number. And so if folks in D.C. are looking into this, no, no major political action as of yet is your understanding, correct? Right. Nothing as of yet. Um, you know, and also on the Senate side, they've uh, Senator Grassley, obviously a long, a long time. I, I worked for him and I still remember he was very adamantly opposed to the Smithfield purchase of um, by a Chinese entity in itself. Um, and also Grassley and, and Senator Brown of Ohio have both introduced a bill that would block foreign individuals from getting credit from the farm credit system. Something we think, oh, well, why would they even be able to do that? But they actually can. They're all actually able to be able to receive credit through the government-sponsored uh, farm credit system. And so they dropped that bill. Um, you know, Grassley was also, he's introduced the Ag Agriculture Foreign Investment Disclosure Act, which also requires them to report their holdings to USDA. There's been a couple different bills that have kind of addressed different nuances of this issue. And so, you know, actually this morning, this, this request for a GAO report, when they request this, this is a government non-bipartisan entity that takes a look at an issue, right? And then they 
actually provide some suggestions on what might need to be done from different agencies. And so these GAO reports sometimes take a little bit of time, but they are a great way for Congress to ask a, a, non, a nonpartisan um, entity of the government to really say, okay, what should the agencies do? What actions can be taken to address whatever issue is is faced before them? So I think that's actually a, a really interesting um, opportunity to, to shine some light. And then, you know, if we do go forward, whether this is something maybe in the farm bill or something, you know, we're having a lot of um, you know, if there's future legislation on addressing what's going on in China, you know, this could get lumped into that. Um, so this GAO report, I think, offers a, a good opportunity to provide that that light, those additional details on what might need to come next. All right, we'll be listening for more of that conversation about foreign land ownership as it happens. But Jackie, I want to turn our focus to the courts. As we mentioned at the top of the show, we've got the Sackett case before the Supreme Court of the United States. We'll get a WOTUS update here eventually from that case. But there was another case that was uh, submitted in the District Court of North Carolina. Ten states and the Federal Trade Commission are suing Syngenta and Corteva effectively over farmer loyalty programs. Is that right? Yeah, um, so big news out. It kind of the lawsuit was actually filed on Thursday, but most of the noise was coming out on Friday on um, this bipartisan group of ten states and the Federal Trade Commission uh, filing a lawsuit against Sagenta and Corteva. And it, it's all about uh, you know every farmer knows that there are brand name and generic named uh, products that they use, right? And so this this is actually uh, contends that Sagenta and Corteva have taken steps to actually stop generic pesticides from and from being provided to farmers because of their loyalty programs um, which which allow um, you know the, the 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 filing actually says that they're they're keeping those distributors from encouraging more generic use by these loyalty programs. Um, Sagenta and Corteva both believe that there's no basis for this lawsuit. Um, you know, they have said that they're going to defend their position. They, they believe their marketing programs are compliant with antitrust laws. But as you take a step back, you know, this Biden administration has been very focused on some of the anti- uh, by by trying to encourage more anti-monopolistic behavior, so trying to take action against these companies that they feel might be taking advantage of of those that they are working with. Um, and so, you know, the other kind of interesting part of this last week, uh, USDA also made a Ag Secretary Vilsack made an announcement offering 15 million to state attorney generals to increase their collaboration with USDA on antitrust enforcement. So I don't think that that 15 million went out that quickly in those four days, but interesting how just days after that money came out, that now a very significant ag uh, case going after exactly what, you know, this, these antitrust uh, charges against two major, major companies in the countryside. Indeed. Jackie, let's talk about this specific case. This is a civil lawsuit. So are these state attorneys general seeking monetary damages? Are they looking to change the way Syngenta and Corteva do business? What's a win look like for the FTC and the state attorneys general? So, I mean, the, the relief could actually include some restitution for farmers. So by the fact that this is a civil case, uh, they could come back and, um, you know, sometimes when this this these type of cases come, um, farmers can be part of a class action suit. So if farmers believe that they were, um, you know, they did not receive a generic and they had to purchase a higher priced uh, brand name 
product um, that, that wasn't uh, available um, or that could have been available, then they could actually get some, some money back on that. So um, they're asking to the court to end the loyalty programs. They want some monetary relief and also pay for the attorney fees. So this, this could be, um, you know, extra money in farmer's pocket if it goes the way um, that these attorney generals are hoping that it will. All right. We'll continue to watch this case, Jackie. You know, you mentioned the shift in this administration in the way they're enforcing these antitrust cases. And there was a comment here made just about a week and a half ago by the newest commissioner on the Federal Trade Commission, as a man by the name of Alvaro Bedoya. And he stressed in this speech that the goal for the FTC under the Biden administration is, quote, the the it is time to return to fairness as the lodestar of antitrust, not efficiency. So I think that highlights the sense that this administration is going to be looking at these things, perhaps in a new way. Oh, definitely. Um, and, and capitalism without, um, oh my goodness, I should, Biden has has regularly been saying too, you know, if, if just just if you don't have fairness, then then you you just feel exploited, um, and and so I think there's definitely been a um, ongoing focus from this administration. As I mentioned, that announcement that USDA made with the extra money for this that was on Monday. They had a this is a whole government approach to this. Not just agriculture. This is across um, all agencies and and really trying to look for where can we find some wins to what they believe provide some more fairness back into the marketplace. All right. We've also got some progress at EPA this week, folks. The comment period for atrazine on your farms closes. That closes on Friday. If you use atrazine, get logged in and make those comments. But Jackie, the EPA also upheld some uh, some seed protection chemicals, didn't they? You know, there was a big win, I think, for soy growers and 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 uh, corn. We all know how important coated seed is for uh, producers. And uh, the EPA actually denied a petition from the Center for Food Safety Environmental Group. Um, they basically that petition was wanting them to regulate them separately. So just because it's coated with a, a pesticide that's already approved, they felt like it needed to be. Uh, regulated separately. And so that would just add more time and more cost onto the, the regulation process for seed, uh, coated seed, pesticide coated seeds. Um, so yes, EPA actually denied that petition in whole, which is which was what the industry was wanting. All right, some progress there, folks. Don't forget about that atrazine comment period. If you use it, those rules could be changing. Let's see, comment on Friday. Jackie Fatka, policy editor over at Farm Progress. Thanks for joining us today. You bet. Thanks so much, Mike. And folks, stick around. We'll be back talking more agriculture here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. You are not your diagnosis. A Thank medical you, chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. 
We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, Foundation Fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are Fighting Blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. To be the king of the road, you have to fill with the king of diesels. We're talking about Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Cenex Roadmaster XL even cleans up and prevents injector fouling to keep your trucks out of the shop and on the road. And typical number two diesel? That's always an option. The wrong option. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. And we're live here outside the Perez family home just waiting for the... And there they go! Almost on time this morning. Mom is coming out the front door strong with a double-arm kid carry. Looks like Dad has the bags. Daughter is bringing up the rear. Oh, but the diaper bag wasn't closed. Diapers and toys are everywhere. Ooh, but Mom has just nailed the perfect car seat buckle for the toddler. And now the eldest daughter, who looks to be about 9 or 10, has secured herself in the booster seat. Dad zips the bag closed, and they're off. Ah, but looks like Mom doesn't realize her coffee cup is still on the roof of the car. And there it goes. Oh, that's a shame. That mug was a fam favorite. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just nail the big stuff. Like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save poison help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. 
You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. We spoke last week on the program about the upcoming election in Brazil. Well, it happened on Sunday night. All four candidates, well, five or six candidates, I forget, there were some smaller party candidates, all ran in the first big election. The big contest was at the top two spots for the ballot. Current President Jair Bolsonaro is running for re-election. His contender, his challenger, rather, is Ignacio Lula da Silva, past president of Brazil, was implicated in some corruption scandals, spent time in prison. The courts reversed his case, so that allowed him to run in this election. And Lula was broadly expected to be the winner. There were some thoughts that perhaps Lula would clear the 50% threshold in order to be named president on Sunday night. And that didn't materialize. The vote was much closer than pollsters had been anticipating. Bolsonaro earned 43, roughly, percent of the vote. Uh, Lula da Silva, the leftist, earned just about 47% of the vote, which means that the election isn't quite done. Those two candidates will head to a runoff election on October 30th. And now things get interesting. The markets have been reacting to this election, or excuse me, the results from Sunday. And so far, they've been broadly favorable, both because Bolsonaro is perceived to be the candidate of business down there in Argentina. He does have the backing of a lot of the agricultural sector in that country. And the fact that he contended so well in this first round means the analysts say that it's less likely that a President Lula, should he win the election on October 30th, would be able to pursue as many of his left-leaning reforms as he would like. The consensus is broadly that this showed there is a strong voice for an alternative to Lula and that it might force some kind of moderation should he win the election here at the end of the month. It is far from guaranteed that a lot of the lower, smaller party contenders would have been potentially sapping votes for Bolsonaro. And the fact that the election first round was so close means that both candidates are now very excited. Lula said he now believes the election is underway and he is prepared to uh, to begin working very hard on his election. And Bolsonaro actually connected with journalists on Sunday night. He doesn't typically do that. He, uh, he came out and gave a, a talk. He blasted pollsters for showing that he was going to do much poorly than he ended up doing. He highlighted the economic improvements they've seen lately lowering fuel and energy prices, and he started a cash transfer program that's been fairly popular. And he pointed out the left-leaning shift in some other South American countries like Argentina, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. And he said he's going to work to make good alliances here ahead of the runoff. So all of this is happening while Brazilian farmers are getting those soybeans planted in the ground. It will be interesting to see how this election will change their export potential 
as it has already caused fairly substantial gyrations in the value of the Brazilian real, their currency, down there in Brazil. We'll continue to keep updated on that issue, particularly as it relates to agriculture. Bringing our focus back to the United States, I do want to have an update on the high-path avian influenza, bird flu that has been causing challenges for poultry producers in this country all year, is back. We've been talking about this for about the past six weeks. The expectation was it was fairly well under control coming out of spring, saw a decline in the number of cases over the summer. Well, now they're starting to ramp back up. This past week saw a 127,000 bird facility in San Pete, Utah become infected, and it continues to spread in backyard flocks. This, uh, this past week, again, we saw a 10-bird backyard flock in Tillamook, Oregon come down with the disease. And uh, so far, it has been confirmed in 478 commercial and backyard flocks across 40 states. So far, that has affected 46.65 million birds. The spread continues, and uh, it does mean that uh, we are going to continue to see poultry fairs and poultry shows close down as this HPAI continues to rage. While we're talking animal protein, and of course, uh, that's been the impact of HPAI as turkey costs have been skyrocketing. They will be up substantially here as we get into Thanksgiving. We've also seen gyrations in the cost of eggs, and all of this combined has led to an accelerating price of animal-based protein products at the grocery store. And yet, we've still seen U.S. consumers willing to get out their checkbooks and bring them home. We'll be talking on tomorrow's episode with Dr. Glenn Tonser, author of the Meat Demand Monitor Survey, tracking how consumers are adapting to these high prices. But that's a theme he's seen all summer, is that consumers, a bulk of them, even as prices climbed, they're willing to write the check for that quality animal-based protein. Not nearly as clear on the plant-based side that consumers are willing to write that check. We've spoken on this show here over the past couple of weeks about the data coming from the alt meat, the fake meats, the, the plant-based protein side of the ledger, and sales have been stalling. Uh, we saw that Beyond Meat sales are off 10% year over year. Of course, they've had some other bad PR news with their COO biting a fella's nose down there at a University of Arkansas football game. Really wanted a taste of that real meat. But we're seeing this spread out across the industry. And in fact, it was announced last week, last week rather, that the JBS-backed plant-based meat program, Plantera, is closing down. Uh, JBS announced they will be laying off 121 workers in the Denver area. They are going to try to restaff them into other locations. The Plantera Lafayette headquarter uh, was closed down this past week, and the Plantera manufacturing facility, which was just built here, I believe, in this past year, uh, will be shut down by mid-December. Uh, they did say they have launched this product back in 2019 with the Ozo line of plant-based burgers, and it just hasn't quite taken off. JBS USA's... Um, President Nikki Richardson said, quote, we continue to believe in the potential of plant-based options for consumers and remain committed to the alternative protein market. JBS will focus its efforts on its plant-based operations in Brazil and Europe, which continue to gain market share and expand their respective customer bases. That's the story there out of JBS. We we'll, won't be seeing the return of Plantera products here on our shelves in this country anytime soon. Real quick look, did have another piece of news from the courts this past week. A federal judge ruled this past Monday that Iowa's ag-gag law is unconstitutional. We'll see how that will get reworked. We'll have that conversation later on here on AOA. Folks, thanks for tuning in. We look forward to you joining us tomorrow. Have a great day, everyone, and stay safe if you're running a combine out there.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Most folks just stick with the diesel engine oil they know. Because why sweat the details? But you don't. You're one of those who'd make the switch. And we're talking to you. Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. While the others experience wear and tear, you give complacency a kick in the pants. Senex Maxtron Diesel Engine Oils. Oil that runs smart. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting.